Welcome, family. <laughs> What's happening, people? What's happening out there? Uh, it's been a dark week here in America. And uh, as your designated microphoners, um, we've just come to tell you that uh, it's going to um, get a lot darker. Curge your loins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's the same thing every week, you know. It's like Groundhog yeah. Day. Well, I I had I don't know. I I don't want to get too much into it because we've got an interview at this interview at this episode. Um which I think does a really good job of sort of showing the state of the working class at the yeah. moment. Um and I, I I this the thing that's been on my mind though in the last 24 hours I, I've just been so disturbed by this Trump rally in North Carolina um, about an entire stadium of people basically chanting. Calling for the deportation and or worse of yeah. Ilhan Omar. Yeah, and um, I think it just goes to show you that um, this country is, as we've as we've said before uh, on the show multiple times, and as we've said in this episode, we are in a sort of political crisis in the sense that our system can no longer contain its many contradictions. And I think that what might result out of that could be a straight-up sort of autocracy of some kind. Uh, if you want to call it fascism, you could call it that. Um, maybe if you want to have the deeper sort of historical view, you call it autocracy or emperor or... <laughs> Whatever. Trial balloon for a coup. <laughs> a head that, fake. That's the thing. Like throughout all this, I, I, it's so hard to not lapse into some sort of like liberal, uh, some sort of like lib analysis of the whole thing. Yeah. But I think that like if you're honest about yourself and if you're honest if, about American history, you will notice that the system is having a very hard time containing its many contradictions. And the thing that I could, could just kept coming back to. Um, with this Trump rally is you have all these liberals saying, well, I can't believe he said this. You can't say this. Well, look, there are no rules in politics. Like, he can say whatever the fuck he wants, it turns out. He, let's just, he lightweight called for the assassination of Hillary Clinton. He lightweight, uh, yes, he did, for his <laughs> political opponent, and this was exactly what he's doing now yeah. with Ilhan Omar. Anything, that's something if we would have done, somebody would have kicked our door in and questioned us. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. And the, and the thing is, is that the way the system, the way the political economy is currently structured, an autocracy does not present a threat to that. What does present a th threat to that is a um, mass movement of workers, um, the politically disenfranchised, um, pitchforks, basically. that uh, A society that is kinder and is governed by workers, by people. Right. Um, and uh, lest you say, why do you focus so much on the workers? That's uh, ableist or whatever. I, I'm using it in the grand sort of universal sense that, like, we are all the pro proletariat. Right. We are daily squeezed of our capital by the people at the top. And um, that's the only solution to this. Uh, it's not going to be some liberal um, refiguring of the political parties or um, – it could, you know, maybe we could buy some more time by trying to uh, institute some reforms. But I think that we are at a crossroads. And I, I hope that this 
interview on this episode gives you a good sense of of what's at stake because we are in a place now um and I think we even pointed it out in the interview, if you were to put the state of the working class now side by side with 100 years ago, um, you know, people working 80 hours a week in, in coal mines, you know, just backbreaking labor and just phys- being physically crushed every day, you wouldn't see a whole lot of difference. Um, but we do live in this weird reality where that reality now has been erased and sort of buried. Right. Um, and so... Hopefully this interview will kind of show you what's at stake, um, because if we keep doing what we're doing, it's it's going to get more bleak. We're going to have more fascist rallies, or whatever you want to call them. And um, I don't know. The only reason I wanted to say something about it is because I was just so incredibly disturbed. Every now and then you get a glimpse of like kind of what the future is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, I, and think- I, you know, I don't want to ring any alarm just yet but you know sort of predicting the future has come our thing you know <laughs> we've, done, we've been pretty good at it for everyone we get wrong we get about six right <laughs> right but i could envision you know we were kind of saying this in jest the other day but i could i could envision a situation where if trump gets close next time mm-hmm. and there's some like credible dispute I could see that going to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court giving it to him. Well, I think that I have become – this is the most liberal thing ever. This is um, – I've really struggled with this because it's a very lib and hack thing to compare the American Empire now with the Roman Empire. Right. But I have become so obsessed lately with the transition from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. And the reason why, and it kind of clicked for me last night, is because when that happened, historically speaking, the masses and society at large did not all recognize that there had been a substantial shift in the political economy of that society. They had different they there was almost a sort of social psychosocial negotiation where they all sort of had to come to terms with the fact that what they lived in in forty a d was drastically different than what they had lived in in forty b c there was they had to they didn't even call the emperor the emperor the first uh, few decades there was uh, like i said a negotiation like oh we can't allow ourselves to think that this is an autocracy even though that's what it was right and the reason why i'm obsessed with it is because it seems to me that that's what's happening now and i'm not i'm not saying that like we are that and that that is our destiny all i'm saying is that if you look at what happened then which is that the contradictions of Roman society had become so explosive that the only thing that could contain them was an autocracy. That was it. And I think that that's kind of what's happening now. If you look at what's going on in the House and in the legislative branches, these branches don't actually have much power anymore. They are mostly just sort of symbolic. Um, Granted, they are able to... um, to use their sort of um, positions to raise awareness of things. And this is why Ilhan Omar is being targeted, because the things that she's saying are truly radical and subversive. And um, and I guess what concerns me so much is that uh, in our sort of hesitancy to uh, look at historical parallels or whatever, we might be... (laughs) Like missing the fact that like 
what we're entering now could be qualitatively different than what we've known all our lives. I hope that like through this interview and through the things that have been in the media the past few days, you'll see that like the society we live in is changing rapidly. And unless we can intervene in that, and we as, as in we, I mean the socialist left, and I don't even mean the liberal left, they're going to have to make their own decisions <laughs> and know how they're going to decide. Unless we can intervene in that and build out our numbers and activate as many people as possible, we might be thrown into the wood chipper as well. Um, or at least have the rug pulled out from under us so substantially, substantially that we don't have a voice in society anymore. We can't affect change in any way. And um, those are the stakes. I, I'm only saying this because if it's this bad already, if we're already seeing these kinds of rallies in July 2019, I had to look at my phone to see what month it was. <laughs> Dude, I blinked. I, I blinked it in February 2017, and now it's yeah. here. It's weird. Um, then it's, it's, it's going to get substantially worse over the course of the 2020 election. And so um, just keep that in mind. Like, Things are changing rapidly, and uh, the stakes are high. So, anyways. In fact, we'd like to wish Otis Hayes of Louisville yeah. happy birthday. <laughs> happy belated birthday, I would, Yes, we, we, uh, we owe um, an apology. Um, so, it was asked, uh, we were asked to wish Otis Hayes a birthday on his big 3-0. We missed it about by about two weeks, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah I think we got so wrapped up yeah. in the Amy McGrath dragon that we've yeah, we, got, we left our boy Otis out in the cold, but never again. Never again. If you have birthdays that you want us to shout, if you have shout outs, just let us know. Uh, granted, we are terrible at checking social media uh, messages. We'll fucking check those notifications all day, but the messages stresses me out. And so, but we'll try to get to them as soon as we can. And um, this one was a special shout out. So, happy birthday, Otis! And um, uh, without further further ado, hopefully you'll enjoy our interview this week with Emily Gindelsberger, the um, uh, author of. Uh, I want to get the whole thing it's right. Long, here. <laughs> I have it written down. <laughs> I'll have to edit out all of this space on the clock. What low wage work did to me, and how it drives America insane. So check out that book. Check out this interview, and check us out on tour. Um, if you, so a lot of these dates keep changing. Um, well, it's here's here's the f- last official final right uh, lineup here on seven twenty eight. We're going to be in Washington D.C. at the Big Hunt for two shows: one at six, one at nine. On seven thirty, we'll be in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. August first, Jacksonville, Florida. August 3rd and 4th, back-to-back nights in Atlanta. And on August 5th, uh, Nashville, uh, Tennessee. And those tickets are available at the streetfightradio.com store. So uh, go hit up the Street Fight website and get your tickets, and we hope to see you out there and hang. We'll see you out there, and we'll hang. So um, anyways, without further ado, here is our interview with Emily. Well, Emily, before we get started, can I ask you how you say your last name? 
Yeah, it's a Gindelsberger. 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 All right. Uh-huh. Well, thank you for being on the show this week, Emily Gindelsberger. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love you guys' show. I'm happy to be on it. <laughs> well, we're happy to have you. Um, Emily, you've just written a book. Um, we might as well just get right into it. You just ri- wrote a book. It's about to come out. It's called On the Clock, What Low-Wage Work Did to Me and How It Drives America Insane. And um, I haven't read the book yet, um, unfortunately, but I will. Um, I've been hoarding the long copy, you said. <laughs> I'm sorry. Tom does that. I'll go over to his house, and he'll have stacks of books that people have sent us, and I never see any of them. Uh, Tom. <laughs> Tom. Rude's what it is. That's right. <laughs> Um, well, so, so Emily, for, um, just to sort of tee things up here, um, what's the premise of the book? Um, what, uh, you know, obviously it's, it's kind of said in the title itself, but, um, tell us a little bit about how you wrote it and, uh, what, um, yeah, what the sort of basic premise of it is. Sure. I mean, definitely it's inspired by uh, Nickel and Dime by Barbara Ehrenreich, which I read as a kid and was a really, like, seminal book in my life, I think. That was, I think, one of the first times, like, when I was a teenager scooping ice cream that I sort of became conscious of, you know, other people have to do these jobs for real. I grew up middle class, not wealthy, but, you know, I wasn't working that job to help support the family. I was working the job uh, scooping ice cream for, you know, spending money. So, and I had written an article a little while before I started on this book about Uber, where I sort of just signed up for Uber because I really wanted to fact check the uh, company's assertion that their average driver made uh, $90,000 a year, which just seemed like bullshit to me, honestly. So, But it was hard to get any data other than, because Uber's not going to share, like, they don't keep track of things like the depreciation on cars or, like, how much people are spending on gas and all of these sort of, like, incremental hidden costs that build up real fast. So I did that, and my uh, experience, well, a, I found that they were making, I mean, that I personally was making, and I was trying to work it, like, as hard as I possibly could. Uh, and I made about uh, between 9 and $10 an hour on average, which at 9 or $10 an hour, you couldn't do it even if you work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So, yeah, there was that. Right. It's not going to add up to 90000 yeah, it is right. never going to add up to 90000 right. And they've stopped throwing that number around, which I am pleased about. But so after that, my experience with Uber was, if, have, have any of you guys ever done like uh, done Uber as a driver? We haven't, and I think it's mostly because of where we live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so what was interesting about it to me was all of the really subtle and kind of invisible ways the – uh, driver side app uh, will stress you out and sort of make like assert control over the worker in ways that are kind of invisible if you're not actually doing it. And it allows them to sort of keep this very con- tight control of the workforce while still pretending that they don't have control of them and they're all, you know, freelancers just doing their own thing. Um, so I started uh, getting really interested in the way technology can be used to. Uh, really tightly control 
uh, workers in the modern economy. Yeah, um, and I think that like that. So it's been a few years since I've worked um, retail and service. I worked at a UPS store for over three years, um, and this was 2009 to or about 2008 to 2012 or so. And um, even then, it was still very tightly sort of regulated by technology, especially your timesheet. So mm-hmm. we didn't use paper time cards. You know, you clocked in with a digital time clock. And and I thought that was one of the more... So you have a piece in Vox that just came out a few days ago um, where you talk a lot about how technology has really reshaped how... Um, how businesses can squeeze as much labor out of workers as possible. Um, And so this idea of uh, technological innovation being used to, um, yeah, immiserate people's lives, um, you know, castigate them, scold them for, uh, or get them in trouble for being a minute late on the job. Um, And and maybe, in my opinion, the most insidious one would be... um, the algorithmic scheduling. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, this is probably something that not a lot of people have um, much of an awareness of, or at least if you don't work in service work. Um, could you explain what it is and why um, companies like to use it so much? Yeah, so algorithmic scheduling is when um, basically there are computer programs that analyze all the data from you know, weeks ago, months ago, like year ago, and from the past, you know, week and sub- and day. Uh, and they sort of jam all those together and predict exactly how busy a store is going to be at any point uh, during the day. So this makes for, like, really weird shift work. It's, like, really – it's really tough to predict what you're going to be week to week. Like, people don't have really regular schedules that much anymore. Um, They just get called in for, you know, five hours one day, like seven hours another day, working a night shift, working a morning shift. Like, there's this thing called a clopen. Oh, I'm sorry, my editor's calling me one sec. (laughs) Out of the frying pan and into the the fryer. Yep. No, I think it's because of Fox Business. I was just on a, I was just on a, a radio show in like Jacksonville, Florida, earlier this morning, and right afterwards, like some Fox Business show like got at me trying to and was interested in having me on, which I'm very uh, conflicted about that. I'm not sure, but all right. Anyway, sorry. I was talking about <laughs> algorithmic scheduling. So that is. Uh, in part why, like, uh, shift work has become so, like, just weird-looking all the time. Like, uh, I, I'm sure you guys are familiar with, like, the clopen. You're right. When I say clopen. Yeah, it's, so that's when one, one worker is scheduled to both close late at night and then open early in the morning, like, with only, like, a few hours to rest in between. And I think when I was a kid, like, you know, 20 years ago when I had my first job, uh, with paper time cards and, you know, the manager drawing up the schedule on paper, there was a lot more humanity involved in the, in the, just in the sense that like lower management, you know, was, was going to have to look you in the eye and give you this ridiculous 
schedule. And it's like human beings kind of, you know, they we get embarrassed about that sort of thing. It is embarrassing to tell someone like, oh, yeah, like, yeah, close at 11, be there at 6, like, or be there at 5, whatever. Whereas now it all comes out of a computer. Uh, so managers have to just kind of shrug and be like, I don't know, that's what the computer told me to do. Right. And it also, like, the computers also, you know, especially at McDonald's, uh, tell, say, when to cut people if the store is not uh, making enough money per hour to justify having that number of workers there. They, a lot of the time, will, like, just cut someone from the shift uh, that was supposed to work a full shift and just send them home after, you know, a couple hours or four hours or whatever. Right. Because, you know, as you point out, the um, the point is to squeeze as much labor out of the worker as possible. And I think you even have a quote that was like, technology has made understaffing a science. <clears throat> so they they, mm-hmm. they sort of, um, you know, get it down to the most um, sort of minute degree of how much business is being done when and will sort of schedule around that accordingly. Um, and and the sort of accumulative effect of that is, I think, and again, I haven't read the book yet, but your piece in Vox kind of um, spells it out. I think what you're getting at is that this all kind of amounts to this just chronic mild stress. And, you know, it's just this, basically how you define that is you, you remove all sort of predictability and control and autonomy from the worker's life. So if they can't, if they're learning about their schedule. Oh, wow. You, you there, Emily? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I couldn't hear you for a second. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> that sounded like a cat scratching a litter box. <laughs> so I know that sound. No, that was actually uh, me desperately trying to uh, rub out the coffee that I just spilled on my carpet. <laughs> Don't mind me. I am, I am a mess. Hey, uh, we all do it. Uh, well, you're, you know, you're two days into being a new author. It's a, you know, it's an exciting, yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. stressful time. Um, so yeah, but like basically your point is that when you have scheduling like this, if you, um, don't know what your schedule is going to be a few days out from your shift, um, you know, and if you, if you're doing things like the clopin, uh, you know, you aren't getting a whole lot of sleep. Basically the effect is you have no control over your own life. Um, Mm -hmm. and and so I kind of just wanted you to talk a little bit about that. Like, um, I think this was probably included in the How It Drives America Insane part of uh-huh. the title. Um, but, yeah, essentially the the effect is this just sort of like low rumbling, chronic, as you say, mild stress. Yeah, I'm kind of on a mission to uh, reclaim, like, evolutionary psychology for the left a little bit. Because right now, whenever anyone is like, oh, yeah, I'm really into, like, evolutionary psychology, you can kind of bet that they're about to like say women are bitches for because they're you know because they have evolved to be that way or something like it always tends to right now the only people talking about evolutionary psychology tend to be either too academic to make it into the mainstream media or kind of uh the the, like intel- the Jordan Peterson, Jordan sort of Peterson. yeah yeah, so I, was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say the intellectual dark web <laughs> yeah yeah and that's the thing because evolutionary psychology is super super fascinating uh, like it's something I've always been very very interested in 
like why I feel the way I do, why I behave the way I do, uh, because it all does sort of make sense. Like, for example, in the book, I talk a lot about uh, PTSD and depression uh, in that, like, I experienced both of those. And one of the really irritating things I thought about depression was, like, that it seemed like it, it was like this mystery where it came from. It seemed to come out of nowhere, and it didn't seem to make any evolutionary sense. Like, I was constantly thinking, like, like, all right, if I were a cavewoman, like, I would have starved to death or something. Like, you know, I would have, uh, if I, you know, didn't want to leave my cave or whatever. Uh, but one of the things that really sort of helped me make sense of why the reasons for depression was getting into sort of the effects of chronic stress on people. And once you get into that, it actually does make a lot more sense why America is kind of acting the way it is right now. And that was something that made the current political situation uh, or just, you know, social situation in America make a lot, be a lot less confusing to me. Uh, It helped me understand why things are the way they are in that, Basically, if you think of that cave woman, and I go, I spend like 8,000 words doing this in the book about talking about uh, like early man and the stress response and what it's for. But basically, if you are getting your stress response, uh, your fight or flight response pinged like 20 times a day, mm. like that wouldn't happen in, uh, you know, any other time than this, basically, in our history, because we weren't really good enough at technology to, to have an immediate response every time you stop working or you stop being productive. Now you can do that. And so people are getting pinged with stress, like, just constantly all day. And, like, back in the cavewoman days or whatever, if that was happening all day, like, every day for months, your body kind of assumes, like, oh, I guess it's the apocalypse now. Or I, I guess things are really, really bad right now and sort of starts adapting to survive better in an apocalypse. And that's and when you look at all of these different effects of chronic stress, it's really interesting. Like you get more people get more aggressive, uh, people get more irritable, people are more xenophobic, they're more afraid of outsiders, uh, and they're more interested in like a strongman leader rather than a sort of more gentle style of leadership. And like, if you look at the jobs that a lot of people have and work, you know, for eight or 10 hours every day, they are the kind of jobs that would pin you with chronic stress all day and then pay little enough that life at home is also chronically stressful. So there's been a lot of like, There's actually not been as many people, like, getting back at me, like, millennials, they don't work hard, they don't, like, they're weak, they don't, you know, just telling people that they should work harder if they want to succeed. Uh, There's been much more response along the lines of, like, yeah, that's my job, that's exactly what I'm talking about, from both, you know, from both the left and the right, which I think is really cool. Um, But the point is that, like, if stress is inescapable, people are going to start, like, getting crueler and tougher and existing as if there is that, like, 
they don't want to take care of anybody but themselves and maybe their immediate families. Uh, but outsiders can, you know, just go fuck themselves. Yeah, it's like, there's, so yeah, there's several things to sort of tease out from this. I guess the first is that um, you make a good point in your essay that this does have societal effects because when we think of the working class, what generally the media and the two political parties have told us is that it's coal miners or, um, you know, construction workers or whatever. Those people are definitely the working class. But if we look at it sort of numerically, um, you know, as you point out, like there's more people that work at Arby's than the entire coal industry. And yeah. not only that, the average age of the fast food worker is 29. So it's not like Paul Ryan says. It's not this summer job. And, and this is the thing. This is what conservatives will tell you. And even a lot of yeah. liberals will tell you that, like, fast food work is this sort of stepping stone to another job. It's like, no, like, a lot of the people that I know that work in the service industry have worked those jobs for years and years and years. Like those are their mm-hmm. jobs, and that's what the working class is now. It is retail work, service work, and it's incredibly stressful, physically demanding. You know, as you point out, um, like something like seventy nine percent of McDonald's workers have been or fast food workers have been burned. Um, right now, I. Uh, <laughs> I'm a part-time pizza cook. <laughs> um, I burned the shit out of my fingers last week. Uh, it's, oh, sorry. It's, well, you know, it's just... And you got to stay in front of that hot oven in 95-degree heat yeah. outside. Right, right, yeah. right. <laughs> so it's like... But that's the thing. Like, you just kind of inter- you just kind of normalize it, and you're like, well, this is the job. And then, you know, 20 years down the line, you know, you're, you're like, I don't have fingers... I don't have feelings, feelings in my limbs anymore and stuff like that. And it's, it's just this sort of, like, slow-building toll. And I think that's what you're getting at like it's mm-hmm. um it's not something that is like every single day a, a boot to your neck it is just little things that add up and for me the biggest one um and i think it's the same for you is in at least in the vox essay is customers having to deal with customers and um m- more specifically having to deal with really mean and just cruel would be the word like cruel people are very cruel they can be and like mm-hmm. will treat you like you are scum like your job is to basically wait on them and um you know will treat you no better than an animal and um and for me personally that was always the hardest part of those of those types of jobs yeah i think it's kind of under uh accented exactly how demeaning and like how it just like crushes your self of sense uh, uh your sense your sense of self-worth and dignity to like just have to obey these customer is always right policies because all right so one of the chapters is a is in a call center and in that call center uh you were not allowed to hang up before the customer for any reason, uh, even if they were cussing you out, even if they were, like, saying just horrible things. Uh, and it was, it made you feel like less than human. It made you feel like you were worth nothing because it was very clear that your dignity was worth nothing in comparison to even the worst customer. Um, and that, again, is not 
uh, it's hard to really get across to people who do not have to deal with that sort of thing at work, who are allowed to, like, stand up for themselves without getting ridden up. Like, for example, like this woman at McDonald's, uh, like she was in a really bad mood and she threw a package of honey mustard at me and it hit me like right in the chest and it exploded and it got all over me and all over my hair. And like, I lost my temper and I just was like, Hey, fuck you lady. What the fuck? And then I ran away into the back room (laughs) because I was, I knew I was not supposed to do that. Even though I didn't really make a choice to do that. It sort of came right out of my brainstem because that's what you do when someone physically attacks you, you know? Right. Uh, it's a completely natural reaction, but I totally got ridden up by my manager for that because, you know, you have to be able to control yourself. Uh, and having to just sit there and take that is really bad for your soul. Like, it's really bad. It's really bad for your body, and, like, it's really bad in all sorts of, like, ways that you can track, like, like, there's all these diseases of civilization linked to, you know, mental stress and stuff. There's this book called The Status uh, Syndrome called, by Michael Marmot that gets, like, really into this, if any of the listeners are more interested in that. But it tracks how, like, even when you account for the, you know, differences in healthcare, uh, people on the lower end of the income scale are less healthy when it comes to heart disease, like ulcers, like all these stress-related diseases. Um, and it's like, yeah, like when you look at all of these, like there's a lot of like uh, right-wing people that are like obsessed with uh, respect and stuff like that uh, and that you respect them and stuff like that. And that's the thing. I, I always wonder whether it's because they need to be respected because they're not respected at work or like there's a human need to be treated like another human being is what I'm saying. And if you're not treated like a human being, it gets to you. Yeah. You have to, um, what you're describing is you're basically asking workers to sort of put aside the fight or flee response basically Mm -hmm. because in an interaction with a person treating you like that, it's pretty much, you know, uh, we are biological creatures. You know, you pretty much have two responses in your mind. You're like, I, fuck you, buddy. Like, uh, let's do this. Or, <laughs> or I'm going to go to the closet. Yeah, or <laughs> I'm going to run away from this, which, you know, both equally understandable um, responses, but both equally unacceptable to management. And Yeah, you... I've always been a fight person myself. <laughs> Uh, like whatever, like I've gotten mugged a couple times in Philly and, uh, both times, like, I know that you should like give up your purse, like with my mind, but in <laughs> the moment I'm just like, Hey, fuck you. Like, what the, yeah, I'm going to fight you even though I'm, you know, a very oh, wait. small oh, wait. person and have no, and I'm not good at fighting at all. <laughs> what about you guys? I, I feel I'm definitely fall on the side of fight and, um, and have been in situation. When I worked at a UPS store, we had this stupid policy. This is just drive me insane. Management would charge people one dollar to get their packages taped up, and mm. you will not understand. Like you would not believe how pissed this would make people. Be- people would oh, get yeah. furious. They and and the funny thing is, is like 
they would get so worked up, their faces would get red, their teeth would be bearing, like they would get so. It would be very primal. Yes, physically. <laughs> yeah, it gets really primal. Exactly, and so you are supposed to, in this situation, act like everything is fine, and for the most part. I generally got it down to a place where I could act like everything was fine. If I'm getting screamed at somebody, I would be able to generally sort of disassociate and be like, all right, whatever. But every now and then, someone just gets under your skin, and I can't explain why. I mean, we're humans. You know, we have biologic, we have hormones, we have other things. We have, his, uh-huh. we have histories and environments. And um, sometimes it's really hard to stay the sort of non-expressive worker uh, and and this is the interesting thing about capitalism it intervenes in a lot of these sort of natural processes um, that uh, you know we would just normally take for granted and it tells you like well you're actually not human you're supposed to act like basically a robot or an automaton or whatever and um, and it, it yes the cumulative effect of that over time over a long period of time will be uh, yeah, uh, you will drink more. You'll probably uh, abuse substances more. Um, it will cu- the effects will result uh, ripple out into your home life. This is good because I actually want to. I'm trying to look up something about. I talked to somebody. I talked to someone actually from uh, Eastern Kentucky University that uh, uh, about the opioid crisis because when I was working at Amazon, it was just so present everywhere I looked. Um, and uh, I kept making – I got this theory in my head, which did not turn out to be, uh, I think, correct, about why, which was, you know, Louisville, the Louisville area is uh, a logistics hub, which means there's just a ton of, like, physical warehouse jobs for people. And, like, I went into a Rite Aid somewhere, like, right before orientation, and, uh, like, just the amount of, like – the the pain medicine and like foot insert stuff was it was like like three times as big as any I'd ever seen, and I recount this in the book. But like it was incredibly painful to my first two weeks in the Amazon warehouse where, and uh, at some point I like I was popping Advil just like all day long because you know you're working on uh, you're walking on concrete floors and it's real tough on your on your knees and your hips and your feet and I went to I one day I ran out of Advil and I wasn't I didn't think I could keep going and one of the details that I think all of the reviews so far have picked out of the book is that they have uh, vending machines in the warehouses that uh, give you free uh, like generic Tylenol and Advil and like other things like cold medicine and like comes or whatever that's the thing that everybody who hasn't had these jobs finds really appalling. Whereas other where Amazon was actually comparatively safe, uh, like warehousing wise, like everybody I talked to said that they were almost super annoying about safety rules. Uh, but the stuff like repetitive stress injuries that Amazon isn't going to really get, you know, held accountable for in the future. Uh, those are trying to keep up with the, pace that they wanted you to go was required you at least me to take a lot of Advil yeah and so when I so I went to this pain medicine vending machine that I where I knew where it was and you swipe your card and it's supposed to like just give it to you for free mine didn't work 
this nice manager lady came over and she was like, oh, honey, is it your first week? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, she swiped her card for me and got me it, got me the ad deal so I could keep working. And uh, I was so, so grateful. And uh, she said, just like, as I was sort of walking away, she was like, be careful about how much of that you use, though. Like, now I have to take four to get the same effect as I used to get from two. So I sort of like extrapolated for that, like, oh, I could see how it would go from two Advil to four Advil to like, you know, Oxy to Fent. Like, it seemed very, like, it seemed like an obvious progression to me. So I called up this opioid, uh, opioid crisis specialist, and he like pointed me at that Michael Marmot book. He said that the repetitive stress injury idea that I had wasn't quite right, but that, you know, it's because people end up like getting addicted to opioids, not just because of injuries, but because they want to escape their lives. And that people do it with a lot of things, like mine is food. Like I tend to like, I mentioned in the book how like when I was working at Amazon, I just stopped at McDonald's constantly because I was like, this is your reward for keeping walking today. Like, and I ate like a lot of ice cream and I gained like some weight. And he's, I don't know, I connect the opioid crisis in the book a lot more clearly to, I don't know, this lack of self-respect and, and dignity that people don't get in day-to-day life. And, yeah, what you said was, like, if you want people in the holler to, if you want to actually do something about this, you build a highway there so that, you know, people are able to, you know, do something that is not just, you know, trying to escape the, their miserable existence, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting that I was driving the other day, and um, and so, you know, where we live is very, as they say, economically depressed or whatever. All the coal jobs have left. So, mm-hmm. like, a lot of their solutions are to um, bring back uh, these sort of types of jobs that you're talking about. The biggest one, I think, around here is call centers. Um, the other day I was passing by this um, billboard. It has a guy standing on front with like a, a headset on. It's for Sykes, which is this big call center company around here. It says, mm-hmm. you may look at it as a job. We look at it as endless possibilities. And it's, I, just, <laughs> I just thought that was the darkest thing. Like if your job, <laughs> you know, your job is just to go, as you were saying, you go, you get screamed at by people all day. You can't hang up before they do, et cetera. I, I that's endless possibility. It's like when McDonald's had that uh, stakeholder meeting and said the Progressive Burger Company. Right. It's like they're just framing as this bigger project. And that's funny you're talking about. I, I have a friend of mine, Emily, that works at McDonald's and has for several years. And uh, I've been working with her a little bit on some some organizing stuff and trying to figure out, you know, some way we could, you know, create a hedge against some of the bullshit that her and some of her workers have to put up with without you know also getting them fired or whatever uh-huh. and she told me the story that um, the guy that owns the location that she works at had noted that their power bills had increased just like by a little bit by a little bit not not even really that much and that um as a result, he was like turning the thermostat up, like even in the back where all the fryers are and stuff, to like oh god, really? You know, in the high seventies and stuff. And 
you know, all the workers were complaining that they were just like, you know, sweating into like, you know, when they were making biscuits in the morning and all this stuff. And they were like, this is just gross. Like, I wouldn't want to eat here, you know, and all this stuff. Yeah. And um, she said that when they, you know, sort of lodged their formal complaint that he drove from Lexington. So he lives, you know, almost three hours away. Drove down from Lexington and set the thermostat on 80 degrees and said, I dare any one of you to touch it. And he sat there all day and watched them to make sure they didn't turn up that thermostat. And for one, that story just, I mean, makes me seethe. But two, I was talking to her about that. I was like, well, you know, well, what are you getting paid and all this stuff? And, you know, she's been there several years, and, like, she showed me her check stub, and she made, like, $11,000 last year. And, you know, she's raising yeah. a kid. She has substance abuse issues, all this stuff. And... um it's just that's what it that's what this just like sociopathic behavior like renders real humans in this kind of work and i had never thought really that much about the evolutionary aspect of it till y'all were talking about it but like if if you're supposed to mute both fight and flight what you're left with is just sort of this you know demoralization in my opinion <laughs> you're right yeah it's it's just sort of like helplessness um you know, you would. I think that most people in human history would say, "Well, okay, uh, what are the political solutions to this? What are the uh, we could organize?" And a lot of people are doing that. Um, and you, you even point that out, especially with the fight for fifteen stuff and um, this, um, the you know multiple complaints that were brought against OSHA uh, against McDonald's in two thousand fifteen. Which, you know, reading those is just absolutely shocking and appalling. Um, but I think that, like, if you're talking about, uh, you know, the sort of political solutions, it kind of requires a reorientation of how we view the working class. And I think this is really important, like what you were saying, like, um, we, you know, the powers, the people in power, uh, we, as we've seen, will take segments of the working class, whether they're coal miners or whatever, uh, auto workers or whatever, and sort of use them um, very cynically for their own sort of ends. And there is a sort of lower strata to that working class that just doesn't even get talked about at all. In, m- in many cases, they they just basically get erased, and that yeah, is like like especially like just like people throw around the like flipping burgers as if it is the easiest possible job. And I think those people maybe were flipping burgers in the eighties. Like Paul Ryan was flipping burgers in the eighties, and and I think I don't know. I might just be like a like a a sunny optimist or whatever, but I'm hoping that they just don't know that they just don't realize it because they haven't had a job like this in in sort of the internet age. How miserable they are compared to how miserable like to, compared to what they used to be, and how. People are trying to support families on these jobs where they were not in the past. Uh, and I'm hoping I can get those people to read this book. I have a, <laughs> a question for you guys. I have a, a, a interest from the Wall Street Journal, I guess, to do some sort of op-ed. If you could speak directly to the readers of the Wall Street Journal... <laughs> Like, and you actually, and you were going to try to actually like change their minds about something without, you know, just having them immediately turn off their, their brains at like $15 an hour or something. What would you, uh, what would you talk to them about? Cause I'm still making up my mind. Wow. That's a good one. Yeah. 
I guess it kind of falls in line with the Fox Business inquiry you also received. Yeah. Uh, I'm still not sure whether they, like, <laughs> want me on just to yell at me or what, but we'll find out. My personal feelings, and this won't get printed, so we might as well just say it um, because it won't get printed. Um, my personal feelings is that you won't be able to change their minds. The reason why this... The reason why capitalism works so efficiently, and I use that with scare quotes, by efficiently I mean, you know, it just tr- turns people into blood grist, basically, um, is because, uh, yeah, because as we've been talking about, the whole thing is predicated on, um, you know, squeezing as much capital out of labor as possible. And um, and there has to be losers. And there has to be losers. That's the whole yeah. point of the system. And so I think that, like, you could maybe say there would theoretically be a nicer capitalism. But, like, it's fascinating how in that 2015 um, complaint, lawsuit, uh, McDonald's response to that was these allegations – I don't remember the direct quote, but you quoted in your piece – that these allegations have been brought – by activists who are trying to tarnish our brand, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and and you're talking about accusations. Is that what prompted the Progressive Burger Company? Probably. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, and the point, you know, and we're not talking about, like, just, um, you know, my, my shift got changed a few times. We're talking about people who suffered third-degree burns, who um, fell... Um, in fast-paced work environments who um, have, you know, their bodies have been totally, like, if, like, this is the fascinating thing I find I find about modern society, is that I think even a lot of leftists think that, like, the working class now is um, mostly sort of uh, been automated out, um, been mechanized out, and we don't have um, sort of working conditions like we did a hundred years ago. And I think if I could tell anybody in this country one thing, it would be that if you were to put the working conditions of service workers side by side with working di- conditions of like 12 year olds in coal mines in 1910, it wouldn't be a whole hell of a lot different. It wouldn't be a whole hell of a lot different. You're basically talking about the same thing. You work people to their death. Or the the and this is the difference. The, con, the I guess the opposite thing of that would would be that you create sort of like quasi working shifts where people will only be able to work like fifteen hours a week, and then the next week they work seventy hours. But the the effect is the same that you don't have any control or autonomy over your own life. And, yeah, and in the book I actually get into the the sort of I guess the science of like what lacking control and on top and autonomy in your life does i oh wait i think i actually mentioned it in the box piece like i think i opened with that actually like how you know rodents are the the models for uh you know depression drugs how they're tested so there's been a lot of research on how to like uh like depressed rodents isn't exactly the right thing because like they, that's not the correct scientific term but yeah like you if you want to test your depression drug you have to make a jillion rodents kind of depressed and the way to do that isn't to traumatize them it's just to constantly ping them with it's just to remove control from their life like make them and have and predictability too. Predictability and control are 
the number one things for trying for like depression and anxiety uh, when they're not present. And like control and predictability are exactly what American workers and like not just American workers, even though that's what I've uh, focused on, obviously, but, you know, workers all over the place because these technologies are kind of everywhere now. Uh, but yeah, like if you remove all like predictability and control from people's lives uh, in the name of, you know, greater corporate flexibility and, uh, and uh, profitability, then yeah, it wouldn't, it's not particularly surprising that, you know, so many people are depressed and so many people have anxiety disorders and so many people are just like, losing their shit at some McDonald's worker for no apparent reason, you know? Because right. that's what you do when you're chronically stressed. You you see everybody as out to get you. Right. Yeah. The thing is about Wall Street Journal readers is that um, the Wall Street Journal's audience is both mostly, um, you know, it's the business class. And... Um, and we do seem to be at a place, me and Tom were just talking about this yesterday, we do seem to be at a place in society where capitalism is in crisis, and, but it's important to define what exactly that means. You have, for the first time in probably 30 or 40 years, you have people, you have reformers coming out. And by reformers, I mean okay. people like Liz Warren who say that the system can, capitalism can be nicer, it can, it can work more efficiently. And that it's actually counterintuitive to have a um, just perpetually disenfranchised and physically degraded and beaten down working class. And that capitalism will work better if you actually institute these reforms. Um, there are people in the Wall Street Journal audience who, who think that because guess what? They know that if we continue on the current path, they're going to end up on the end of a pitchfork. And they don't want oh, that. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, that's, I just made that point on the, like, on some, you know, public radio <laughs> talk show or whatever. And uh, I made the, the point that, like, like, I'm not an economist and, and I don't, like, I'm not a business person. Like, I'm not that great at, you know, predicting what's going to happen in the future, although I, I think I can sort of see where the general trend where things are going. But if you want real proof, like, if you want, actual proof that this is not sustainable just look at what they're doing right now in like silicon valley and wall street those people are generally you know valued for their ability to anticipate where the markets are going and like where they can arbitrage stuff and like a bunch of them are you know there was that new york times article like a couple years ago about how like (laughs) all these like tech people are buying land in new zealand and like making a luxury apocalypse bunkers (laughs) And, like, the other half of them seem to be investigating universal basic income, which seems like it should be just philosophically appalling to them, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those people tend to know where things are going, and I find that to be kind of worrying that that's where they think things are going. It's either going to be pacifying people with enough money that their lives aren't miserable every month, but that also removes, you know, the power of labor from the equation because... You know, if it's just robots, then what are you going to do? Uh, or, you know, they think it's going to be pitchforks, yeah. one or the other. Right. Yeah, this is the thing. Um, I guess if there's – okay, yeah. If, so if there's two things I could tell the Wall Street Journal audience. The first thing is that the whole automation myth is um, people keep using it to sort of like 
do a gotcha thing about like sort of Marxism or communism. I don't know what your politics are, but personally, that's where I'm at. And Mm -hmm. people would say, um, you know, if you have an automated workforce, then the whole thesis of Marxism is invalid and not going to work. I don't think that... Oh, yeah, because Marx never thought anything about, like, <laughs> the relationship between humans and machines and that sort of thing. Exactly. As, what was the headline yesterday? Marx didn't, um, Marx didn't take into equation software. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just like, well, I mean, no, but, you know, that's the thing. These things are not... People treat software, uh, like, this sort of monitoring software as if this is some sort of new thing. But it's just exactly the same dynamic as, like, like I don't know. Y'all know about, like, uh, Frederick Taylor at all? No. All right. So he was this dude in uh, sort of the in the 1880s. Uh, like, factories were reaching this sort of breaking point where you could no longer uh, get people to not uh, slack off or soldier on the job. Like, soldiering is basically everybody in the factory is, like, uh, we could go faster, but then, you know, we'd be exhausted at the end of the day. Why don't we all agree on a pace of work? And that's how long they're, and that's, you know, it's kind of like early quasi-unionization. Yeah. And so so that sort of limited the size of factories at that time, just because, like, you used to be able to, uh, you, you know, if you were, you know, Adam Smith's pin factory, that, like, famous uh, example of, how like breaking down tasks and having people every person do like yeah division uh, of labor basically yeah exactly like that that the pin factor he was talking about was like 10 dudes like they were all pretty small and you were probably working alongside your boss and you know you probably had a relationship with him right uh whereas like once the boss becomes this sort of far off guy in a you know monocle and top hat you're less likely to want to like bust your ass for him uh so what taylor what taylor's innovation was and it's huge and it's kind of a shame that like people don't really remember him that much because this was such a big deal uh was uh there was a new technology at the time and it was the stopwatch that was both accurate and like affordable for uh like non-royal people so he was one of the first people to start like timing out every step of a job and then, you know, trying to figure out how everybody should do it and how fast they should be doing things. Because before that, it was kind of impossible to do that. Right. And, and like, so that was one advance in technology. And another was Ford with assembly lines uh, and that sort of thing. And so, like, but when you look at the jump between, like, a stopwatch, like an analog stopwatch and records being all in paper with today's like digital stopwatches and GPS monitoring. And like at the call center, there were rumors that some program was, you know, parsing all of the recordings for whether you raised your, one of you raised your voice or used a certain language and that sort of thing, like voice identification. Uh, It's exactly the same thing. It's just that technology has gotten so good at applying it that it's just completely, you know, trying to, like, bring, what is it, blood from a stone? Is, yeah. that, the, is that the idiom? <laughs> or water from ca- a stone? Blood from a turnip. You came to the Idiom Wreckers Caucus, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> we like to fuck them up, so <laughs> I know what you're saying, though. 
I think the one miscalculation with all that though is software doesn't buy shit. Yeah, yeah. stopwatches well, don't buy. And shit. so this is the this is the point. Um, this is the point I guess I'm trying to make is that we'll never have a fully automated workforce. Like that would that would implode the whole system. You need consumers. And so um, what we're gonna wind up getting, I think, in the coming years. Well, we've already got it, but we're starting to see what it can really, how it can really scale up, and how it can really amount to something just just blood, you know, blood soaked is a mixed sort of automated. Um, and peopled workforce. And so, yeah, what you're describing is, uh, yeah, controls on workers that were sort of explored and re- kind of refined and perfected in the late 19th century and early 20th century that are now finding sort of manifested in new technological solutions. And yeah, so, it's like, it's like a ghost in the machine sort of thing. Like, I, I felt like I was seeing Taylor everywhere in all of my jobs. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, and so, yeah, that's the thing. Like, there's this um, idea that there won't, that there will be a sort of permanently disenfranchised underclass people automated out of work. And the reality is that um, I think that it'll be people working seventy hours a week, uh, basically. In the the whip cracker is no longer a foreman or a, a manager, even though that person still exists. But it's it's algorithms and it's robots and and technology which is incredibly bleak yeah because like that's the that's the thing like Taylorism has definitely been applied to lower management and like mid-level management as well like it's like a lot of this stuff is coming from the top like a lot of managers like some guy i was on radio times yesterday and some uh, former manager of a mcdonald's called in which was really cool and he was talking about the way algorithms like, you know, like he had to obey what the computer said. Like he didn't really have a choice in whether to like he didn't have discretion to be like, no, that's not going to work. We might have a rush later. I don't want to cut this person or I don't want to cut this person because they have kids and they should be able like that's, you know, four hours of work that they thought they had that they now don't have. Yeah. Um, well, and so I guess this brings me to the second point that I wish I could tell Wall Street Journal readers, which would be mm-hmm. get ready for the pitchforks, because if this continues on as it's coming, like, um, granted, a lot of us, you know, we get demoralized uh, or addicted or whatever, but at the same time, um, you know, that can only, that's, that's only sustainable for so long. If history has proven anything... There's there's never been a point in human history where people have endured conditions like this for forever. Prolonged. Yeah. There's always revolt. Um, mm-hmm. Because if we get back to, as you're saying, sort of evolutionary psychology, if we can sort of tease out any aspects of human nature, for me, the biggest one is nobody likes being oppressed. Nobody likes having a boot to the neck. And they're going to respond to that. And um, so, yeah, I guess that's the thing. The pitchforks were probably coming... Um, Hopefully, um, hopefully <laughs> sooner rather than later. Um, but anyways, I don't know. Tom, do you have anything you want to ask before? I just wanted to to wrap up on this note. Is, is there, you know, I've not finished the book. Terrence hasn't cracked it. But you got any good horror stories about, uh, you know, all these jobs that you've done personally <laughs> that, uh, that uh, you might be able to tease? Well, I will say that the Amazon chapter, like, I, one of the things I, I tried to do real bad was actually make people uh, 
feel it, I guess. Like, I used to be, like, I went to school to, at, uh, at Oberlin to be a musician at first, and then about halfway through that, I was like, oh, shoot, I'm not good enough to do this. Uh, but I still, you know, learned a lot of really interesting stuff about trying to communicate emotion and the way you're feeling to an audience. Um, and I tried, and I'm trying, I've tried to do that in all my writing, but particularly this, where it is important for people to not just read numbers and stuff about, like, you know, the number of people that have these sort of jobs and, like, how much they're making, but they need to understand what it feels like all the time. Like, there's that that one dude who's, like, you know, facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> like, it's really much more, like, like, feelings are important. Like, that's, they are what we live in, like, every day. We marinate in them constantly. And if you're constantly feeling like you're worthless and whatever, like, that's going to have a bad effect on you no matter what, and the, you know, general public, no matter what kind of job you have, Mm -hmm. and no matter how much it pays, even if you, like, I'm sure, like, I have corporate lawyer friends uh, that I went to college with, I'm, their lives seem fucking miserable, uh, because, you know, their time just as closely as, you know, McDonald's workers there's a difference in that, like, their home lives are a lot easier because they're able to buy their way out of, you know, chores and they take an Uber home instead of the subway or, or you know, they're able, to, they're, bu- they're able to buy their time back. But I guess if there's, like, one big point I want to, I was trying to make with this is, like, the way work feels, like, people's experience of it day to day is really really important and it's something we're not even tracking right now just because it's hard we still have this very like facts don't care about your feelings idea of like what being rational is but it's just it's that's just such a simplistic way of thinking about things in that like the human brain is like the most complicated thing in the entire known universe right right? like we are not and we're trying to, like, fit it into this, like, very simplistic equation of, uh, like, free market capitalism, and it just is not working. Like, I think you all you have to do is just look around at what the country is doing right now to see it's not working. Um, so we really need to be able to assign value in a market if we don't want – everything to, you know, if you are not interested in revolution or like pitchforks, <laughs> then people are going to have to start putting value on things that right now are just treated as like, yeah, whatever, that's not important. Uh, if you don't measure something, it's not important. And right now we don't measure whether everybody's miserable. And that's really important. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't have the numbers on that, but anecdotally, I would say that uh, yeah, everybody's miserable. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's because like the the you know the GDP doesn't care if anybody's miserable. Uh, yeah. Totally. Um, well, so Emily, uh, the book is on the clock. What low wage work did to me and how it drives America insane. Thanks. Available now where fine books are sold. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And. I'm going to try it again. In D- Emily Grin- Grindelsberger? Is that right? 
Gindel's Burger. Gindel's Burger. I'm <laughs> there, so, there it is. So I, you don't even know how many times, how many amazing pronunciations I've had of my name throughout my life. <laughs> that was not particularly bad. I'm sorry. Um, mine is very straightforward. So <laughs> three <laughs> three syllables, the whole name. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. Yeah, pick up the book wherever you can. And um, anything else you want to plug, Emily? Oh, I'm going to have, uh, for any Philadelphia readers, I'm, ha- I'm throwing an event called the Hegemonic Bar on July 26th at Moss Space. And uh, I'm not going to say much more about it, but I am going to say it will be a good time, and there is a interesting twist to the party. Nice. Go do that shit, Philly. Yeah, go, go check that out, Philly. Thank you so much, Emily, and we'd love to have you back on sometime. Sure, man. All Fun right. to talk to you. Same to you. Well, I'm going to that hot creek mountain. Go on back to old Black Mountain Hill. I'm going to fight for the Union, cause I know it's Mother Jones's will. Yes, I know it's Mother Jones's will. The children were laying in these tents. While they on upon their quills, the thugs they were rambling through their tent, pouring kerosene in their milk, pouring kerosene in their milk. I'm going back to Old Horns Creek Mountain, going back to that old Black Mountain Hill. I'm gonna fight for my union, cause I know it's Mother Jones's will, and I know it's Mother Jones's will. And folks caught me way out to myself, and I had a shotgun that stayed at home. They took that shotgun, they five of them, broke it over, hit it over the railroad, broke it all to pieces, and they kicked me loud so I couldn't walk, hardly, for a week. Like to like, kick me dead, like kick me all apart. I broke that gun all to pieces. That happened on our creek. That blow up. Uh, there's a deep hole I call Lenore. Hmm. And they, they, they sure was bad, dirty thing, dirty stuff.